provide for you um, some resources that are helpful, that we know are going to be um, accurate resources and not going to take you down rabbit trails that are really unhelpful. And I want to highlight a book here. Um, you know, you, our, our contemporary culture today talks about, you know, we shouldn't judge. Um, we shouldn't, in other words, have an opinion on anything is basically what it means, uh, that expression. And um, Tim Challies, a couple of years ago, wrote this great little book called The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment. Um, God has called us to be discerning, which means that we need to be able to see things and form an opinion that is based on what God's Word says. So it's not just a, an opinion because we have an opinion, but what does God say about this one thing? And that is called discernment. And the emphasis of this book is basically making sure that we have the tools correct and we are having the right attitude and approach to be able to say um, what we need to say as far as giving our thoughts, which really hopefully are God's thoughts. So just a great, practical, helpful book, The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment. Um, I would highly recommend it and I uh, would encourage you to consider it. There's only one copy and uh, we can wrestle for it after service today, okay, um, for those that would like it. I would invite you right now to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, and we are going to be continuing on in our study of Ephesians chapter 5 today. And um, I've invited Kathy to come and to read the scripture for us this morning. So let's stand, Ephesians chapter 5, and verses 15 through 21. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the great privilege and opportunity we have of gathering together, of opening a word, of studying it together. Lord, not just for academic purposes, but Lord, so that we can truly grow to be like your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, help me today to be your mouthpiece, Lord, to allow um, your word to be seen in its proper setting and understood, Lord, as you have revealed it to us. And Lord, would you strengthen us? Would you open the eyes of our hearts? Would you give us eyes to see? And uh, Lord, may we um, just truly be drawn closer to your son, Jesus Christ, as a result of our time this morning. We ask in your precious holy name, amen. All right, thank you. You may be seated. So if you're visiting with us this morning, I just want to just remind you, or at least let you know, um, we work through the books of the Bible typically, and we've been working through the book of Ephesians. And it's really, really important to do that because if you don't do that, there's a tendency to make texts of Scripture say things that maybe that Scripture isn't saying. And today we have a passage where there are uh, there is a phrase or there's a verse in here that often is quoted, but is often misquoted. In fact, I've seen this on Facebook a number of times. Um, you hear it a lot of, uh, in Christian circles. 
Um, look at verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And this whole idea of being filled with the Spirit is pulled out of this verse, and it's there. So certainly he's talking about being filled with the Spirit, but what does it mean? And I think it's important for us to recognize that in order for us to understand what it means, we have to understand the context and the greater context of the book of Ephesians rather than forcing on it our understanding, our thinking of what that verse actually means. And so today, uh, we want to approach this passage carefully. And so as Paul um, is moving from describing our position in Christ, that would be chapters 1 through 3, to applying our position in Christ, verse, or chapters 4 through 6, he uses the image of walking to depict the contrast between the lifestyle of the believer and that of the ungodly. So this idea of walking then is an opportunity, it's a metaphor, it's a picture to help us understand what it means to actually follow the Lord Jesus Christ against following the ways of the world, and the world being everything that is opposed to God. Look, if you would, please, at chapter 4, chapter 4 of Ephesians. I just want to just kind of highlight this. We begin at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So your attitude, your behavior, your thinking should flow out of what I have just described, he's saying, in these three chapters about your position in Christ. And then chapter 4 and verse 17, he tells his, his readers to walk in holiness. Okay, 4.17, to walk in holiness. Then, um, also in chapter 5 and verse 2, he says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So this, this holy walk, or not walking like the Gentiles do, but in holiness, and then also walking in love is followed up with what we looked at last week in chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So here's this, this walking language. But this walking language is not new with Paul. Paul didn't come up with it. In fact, it's come up um, a few different places in the Bible already, and let's just highlight a couple of them. It's certainly a, a, a metaphor that is used in the Old Testament, in particular in the wisdom books, and we'll just focus in on Psalm 1. Here's what Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all uh, that he does, he prospers. So he is not like the wicked. He's not like the ungodly. His walk is unique. It's different. It is sourced in God. In fact, the whole of the Psalms kind of flows out of Psalm 1, uh, which basically demonstrates there are two ways to live. Right, either I'm going to follow God or I'm going to follow something other than God, and we call that the world, we call that the ungodly. Then, um, this idea of these two different walks is on the lips of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14, where Jesus says this. This is the Sermon on the Mount, part of it. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow 
and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So there are two different walks. There's the narrow walk, and there's the broad walk, okay? So there's this picture here of there's God's walk, and then there's the world's walk. And so this walk language is helpful. And one of the reasons it's helpful is because you can tell a lot about someone from how they walk or where they walk, right? I mean, just go to the mall sometime and just watch people walk, right? There's people that are walking like this, right? You know? They're, they're, it's all about me. I want to be noticed, and they got some kind of a they got some kind of slouch and a canter to their walk, right? And then you have people that are just kind of walking real fast like this. You know, there are different things you notice and you see about people based on how they walk. Okay. Now, obviously, that's more in a kind of a secular, general sense. But there is a sense in which, when the world looks at believers, there should be something very clear about their walk that points to something different, and that something or someone different is ultimately Christ. So Paul takes up this walk metaphor with vigor in Ephesians, and now in particular in chapter 5, verse 15, where he says, look carefully then how you walk. So this passage that we have, verses 15 through 21, uh, really serves two purposes. It is a summary passage of what has already been said about walking, but it is also an introduction for verses 22 through chapter 6 and verse 9, where he is going to continue talking about walking, but he's going to home in on some specific areas that need attention. So to summarize the three walks mentioned, Paul says to the Ephesian believers, be careful how you walk. In other words, you're living in the context of darkness. You're living in the context of sensual, idolatrous darkness. Therefore, be careful how you walk. And then as he looks forward, he looks ahead to what he's going to say. And what, what is ahead? It's the subjects of marriage and the roles of husband and wife. The subject of parenting and both the, the children's responsibility with their parents and the parents' responsibilities with their children. And he says, be careful how you walk to each of these individuals, to all the people that he's addressing. And then he speaks to the whole concept of slavery, slaves with their masters and masters with their slaves. And saying, in the context of living, if you are a child of God, a slave should walk differently if they're a follower of Christ, and a master should walk differently if they're a follower of Christ. There's something unique to that walk. So walk very carefully. So the idea then of careful is something done accurately, precisely after close attention has been given. In other words, if you're given instructions, you pay attention to the instructions, you seek to understand the instructions, and then you apply those instructions so that you can walk. You want to, like if you're going for your road test, right, you, you read the book. And you know that you're going to get something wrong, but you read the book anyway because you want to make sure you're doing things right. You're going to be careful when you come to that term, that you slow down, that you put your indicator on, that you do your head check, all those things, right? All these things we forget about once we actually drive and we get our license. But when we get our license, we we were careful, we're mindful. So we look carefully. And the idea of look here is, is emphasizing the importance or the urgency of this instruction. 
Now, those that have been to Bolivia or came to Bolivia with me this past year um, know that the roads and sidewalks here in the USA are simply completely different to the roads and sidewalks um, in Bolivia. The ones in Bolivia are far more precarious than what we have here because animals roam freely. Dogs, cats, chickens, donkeys, horses, cows, and every now and then some pigs. And you need to be careful how you walk because you don't want to walk into those animals. But you also need to be careful how you walk because those animals like to leave things around. And they're not typically mindful about where they do that. And so you need to be careful how you walk. Now, um, it's imperative then in that context that you even plan how you're going to walk because you don't want to find yourself in a very kind of precarious or unpleasant situation. There's a minefield awaiting you, and sometimes you can't see it, and sometimes you can. Now, the point here is this. If you know you have to walk across a field or down a road, and there have been animals around, you are going to be careful, are you not? And if you have children, what are you going to tell them? Stay close to mommy, stay close to daddy, because you need to be careful how you walk, because mommy and daddy know they have to do the cleanup, right? We're mindful of those things, and so we're emphasizing being careful how we walk. And, and the point here is this, guys, that life in this dark world that is described as an evil world is full of minefields. And Paul has been revealing to us how we should walk in the context of darkness, and he wants to make sure that we are aware that this walk is not something that is done in a cavalier way. It's something that is done carefully. So he's exhorting the Ephesian believers and us that as they walk the minefield of this dark, evil world, that they should walk very carefully. Okay? They should walk very carefully. And he uses three contrasts to explain what walking carefully looks like. Let's just highlight what they are. It looks like being wise and not unwise. It looks like being understanding and not foolish. It looks like being spirit-filled and not drunk. Have you ever walked in the woods on a dark night? Yeah. And out of nowhere, some tree grabs you, or some bush comes up to you, or you stub your, you know, your, your foot in some, some hole. All those things are happening because you cannot see where you're walking. But we are to walk in light. We are the children of light. We have a, a lamp, so to speak, to guide our path, Scripture says. And so we walk carefully, allowing that Word of God, the truth of God, to light the path so that we can walk carefully and purposefully and for His glory. So let's look, first of all, at this first counsel, this first exhortation to be wise and not unwise. It says, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, at face value, we understand wisdom to be much more than simply the acquiring of information, right? Wisdom, um, true wisdom, is the ability to apply 
that information skillfully and effectively. So, you know, you might go to school, you might have degrees, you might have a head full of knowledge, but if you can't apply that knowledge practically, you're not wise. Okay? Wisdom means the ability to apply what you have learned practically, carefully, and effectively. So, to be a wise student of God's Word, not only do you need to have an intellectual grasp of God's Word, but you also need to develop the skill of applying that Word to living. And that's where the whole idea of discernment comes in. It's not just saying, well, the Bible says, and here's a verse, but it's saying, if that is true, then what is the implication of that on how I live? So to be wise is to practically apply God's truth to everyday living. But before we apply that understanding to this passage, we must ask ourselves the question, what does Paul mean when he is talking about being wise? How has he been talking about wisdom already in this letter to the Ephesian church? Well, let's turn to chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I'll pick it up at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So God intends for his children to have understanding of his will. His plan then is lavishing grace upon us. And this is part of um, this, this wisdom that we are receiving. Go to chapter now 1, verses 17 through, ni- uh, 17 through 19. <clears throat> it says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of heaven, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which, you, uh, which he has called you, what are the riches of his, glory, uh, his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So Paul here is praying that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we could fully understand the mystery of the gospel and therefore live in light of it. Okay, so, so wisdom here is not just the, the definition I gave you, simply practically applying um, what you've learned. Wisdom here is rooted in, in this book by describing what God has given us, and that is the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So here in chapter 3, verse 10, we're told that God would use many different ways to demonstrate the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So what we see is that wisdom and mystery go together. Or to put it differently, in order to understand the mystery, we must be wise. And so the logic of Paul is this, to be wise is to grow in our understanding and applying or application of the mystery of God. That is his redemptive plan. What is this mystery that's made known? That God from eternity past has chosen some to be, that, that, will, that will actually believe in him and follow him to be redeemed, to be adopted, who have been sealed with the inheritance 
by the Holy Spirit. There is this overarching reality, his redemptive plan. That is the mystery, that is the wisdom that he wants the principalities and powers to see through the church. So this wisdom is something that has been given to the church to make known. And God makes it known as we do what we're called to do as the church. So in light of God's eternal plan, a plan that we are convinced is unfolding and that we are privileged to be a part of, we should, verse 16, be making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Just think about this. God has this eternal, or has this redemptive plan, and we are, you know, we're in the middle of this redemptive plan. His redemptive plan is working through our time, our generation now. And the question then is, if that is true, and if you are a part of this, this overarching plan, what are you doing with the opportunity that he has given you now to help, or you should say, to be a part of the unfolding of that plan in your context? It's not that God needs your help, but God works through individuals. He works through people. And so he's saying here, listen, don't be unwise. In other words, don't be so consumed with yourself and other things that are going on. Be wise. See this unfolding redemptive plan and plug yourself into it. And when you do that, recognize now is the opportunity for you to use your gifts and talents to snap up all the opportunities that you can why? Because we're living in the evil times. Again, we pick this up, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Notice what it says there. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul isn't talking about some future day. He's talking about that day. It is the evil day. And today, friends, is described as an evil day. Go over one book, Galatians before Ephesians, and look at chapter 1 and verse 4. Let's pick it up at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. All right, so we're living in this present evil age. I'm not calling it evil. God's calling it evil. Paul's calling it evil. It's repeatedly described that way. But this is the context into which God has placed us, and we have then a responsibility as his children to be careful how we walk in the darkness of this, this evil age and to walk in such a way that we are wise, recognizing the, the opportunity that we have to be about God's purposes in his overarching unfolding of his plan. So in light of that gospel plan, um, he's calling us to be purposeful and skillful and careful about what we do, where we do it, and how we do it. And this, this phrase, making the most, uh, best use of the time, has the idea of buying back time. In other words, because the days are evil, redeem it. I think King James even uses the expression redeem it, but our approach should be, what are we doing with it? How are we behaving with it? And what should we be doing with that time? We must be diligent then to be wise about the opportunity that God has given us. Be careful then how you walk. Be wise, not unwise. The second comparison here or contrast is similar to it, but it builds on it and goes a little bit deeper. Okay, 
And here he talks about be understanding, not foolish. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Like I said, although this is similar to the the wise-unwise contrast, what Paul is calling for is something deeper. Let's just think a little bit about what the, the Psalms and the Proverbs say about the fool. How is he seen? Well, Psalm 14, verse 1, tells us that the fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. So a a foolish person, then, is a person who is not even willing to recognize God's authority and God's presence, that he even has something important to say about how you're living. The fool is more concerned about what they want to do. Okay? He acts then as if there is no God. Proverbs 21.20 tells us that he is careless. All right, he doesn't value what he has. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. He doesn't treasure. He doesn't care for it. He just kind of goes after it and just, you know, just destroys it, uses it, wastes it all in a moment rather than thinking through the value of what he has. Proverbs 18.2 tells us that the fool lacks understanding and discernment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Now, I know you're thinking about someone right now. Hopefully, people aren't thinking about you right now. But this is the fool. He lacks understanding. He loves to be heard. Proverbs 15.21, folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. So he also despises wisdom, Proverbs 7 and verse 1. Sorry, Proverbs 1 and verse 7, I should say. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So ultimately, the fool refuses to depend on God and instead turns to other things to his own ruin. He lacks skill or discernment in practical daily living because he isn't, he isn't following a master except himself. He isn't allowing God to be his guide. He is his own guide. So he attempts to get through life on his own strength with his own skill and ingenuity, but it will, it will always, always fail. Therefore, this is a call for the Ephesian church or the Ephesian believers to not return back to how they once lived. I want to take you back to chapter 4 and verse 17 and following. See, Paul's Paul's writing things as he gets to the end of this book that that he's referring back to. He's pulling back to things that he's already said about these people. Ephesians chapter 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. So he's going back and saying, listen, when you walk carefully, don't walk like a foolish person. Don't walk like someone that you once were. Walk now with the understanding that you have been given. And friends, that is is for all of us. So instead, they are to be understanding as it relates to the will of the Lord. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Therefore, understanding the will of the Lord is the opposite 
of being foolish. The question now is, what is the will of the Lord in Ephesians? Go back to chapter 1 and verse 9. Chapter 1 and verse 9. Here we're, we're told that God wants to make known His will to us. And so it's the will of God to create for Himself a body of believers committed to doing His will, blessed, chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, with an inheritance, sealed, all according to His will, all according to His grace, all according to His purposes, all according to His glory. That is His will. As we continue on, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, tells us that it is will to breathe life into our dead souls. I'm summarizing what it says there. And ultimately in verse 10, to be called his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is his will. And he goes back and tells the Ephesian believers, this is what I did. This was my will for you. And then chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, it was his will to reconcile Jew and Gentile into one man, one body, through the cross, through Christ. Again, this was God's will. So now, in chapter 4 through 6, based on what God's will has been revealed, we need to live out of that will in our daily living. We understand what the will of the Lord is. So let me give you a few, few might want to say, exhortations as to what is being talked about here. What is this will of the Lord? It is, first of all, an exhortation to a fuller understanding of what they have already been taught. Let me ask you this. Have you ever read a chapter in a book, and after you finish the chapter, you close the book, and you say to yourself, I have no idea what I just read? And probably because you're reading that book and your mind is actually on other things, but you're physically reading it, and you get done with it, and you're like, okay, you know, I read that, but I can't comprehend anything that I read because I really wasn't paying attention to it. And here's the point. That is that God has already been revealed to these people. Now they need to understand what has already been revealed. You and I have been given the privilege of His Word. We can say, well, I've read the Bible. Okay, but do you understand the Bible? Anyone here ever arrived at full understanding of all that is written in the Bible? If you have, we'll exchange places. Okay, no, but it is our challenge then to say God has revealed himself and therefore I must, I must seek to have a fuller and a deeper understanding. I'm not talking here about finding secrets in the word of God, but simply about finding what is actually there. And what he's revealing about himself, what he has called us to, to do, and how we are to live, and the things that he says don't do, and the things that he says you must do. And sometimes we've read, but we haven't allowed those things to sink in. Some of the testimonies this morning about Cornerstone revealed that, that the Word of God is a mirror. And when you go through the process of allowing the Word of God to be a mirror, it's like, ah, that's what it's saying. I've read that, but now I understand so the first thing is it's an exhortation to fuller understanding of what, what they have already been taught. Secondly, it's, it's an exhortation to right conduct that flows out of that understanding. You see, we can't behave properly unless we know what God says first. And we have to have a right understanding 
And that right understanding then fuels then our conduct, how we are to live. And so knowing the will of the Lord means that we know what he expects, what he desires, and also means that we now can behave in a way or make decisions in a way that match what he says in his word. The fool rejects God's instructions. A wise person seeks to understand and apply God's instructions to daily living. A third aspect here is this. It is an exhortation to listen to the will of Jesus. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Be be eager to hear. Be eager to learn. Now, we usually think of the Lord as referring to the Father. But here, and in Ephesians in particular, Lord language refers to Christ, not to God. Now, go back to chapter 5. I just want to, especially in this context here, I want to point this out to you. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, our mind automatically goes to Lord equaling God the Father, right? That's just where we naturally go. Then look, at, if you would please, at chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, which is where we're at in our text. Now go to chapter and verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of what? Our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. Okay. So the, the point here is this, that these instructions are not necessarily just instructions from God. These are, this is what it means to be in Christ and to live out of Christ. We are united with him, and because we are united with him, then we are to walk in a way that matches that unity. All right, And so we want to understand what the will of Christ is, and not that the will of Christ is going to be anything different than the will of the Father, but we want to make that distinction. This is what it means to live for Christ. This is what it means to live out of this union with Christ. So then this is a call to seek to understand Christ and how we are to please Him with our lives, to act with the full knowledge, confidence, and joy that there is a God and He can be followed, it is a call to, careful, uh, to be careful to listen to God's counsel and follow it, to be discerning as I seek to live life through the lens of his word, to learn to be dependent on God and therefore seek to please him. It's also a call, if you want to say it negatively, to not um, reject God when he speaks. You may have selfish reasons. You want something so bad and God says you can't have it. But you say, well, then I'm not going to listen to you, God, because I have to have this. And I'm going to find some way to make it look as if this is okay for me to have when God says, it's not. And friends, we've got to be, we've got to be humble and, 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 and submissive to God to say, this is what God says, and I want to do His will. I don't want to somehow take my will and twist it to look like God's will. I must be conformed to His will. So when you look back on Paul's instructions about avoiding the sexual promiscuity of a darkened world, which is what he talked about at the beginning of chapter 5, how do these exhortations challenge you to walk differently? How do they challenge you to walk carefully? How do they challenge you to walk purposefully? Because he's saying, be careful how you walk now, not as foolish, but now with understanding. Ah, he says, look out over here. There's danger over there. Don't walk there. 
Don't go down this path because if you do, it only leads to destruction. And, and what are you going to do with that? Are you going to say, well, you know what? I'm not going to listen to God. You're being foolish. That's what he's saying here. Be understanding. Not only be wise, but be understanding. As you look ahead at the practical subjects of marriage, as we anticipate what we're going to be going through the next few weeks, um, how do you see these exhortations guiding your walk? Are you going to be careful? Are you going to pay attention? Are you going to say, God, I need to understand this. I need to see your truth. I need to be able to follow it. And I, 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 want, I want your will to be done in my life. Not what I want, but what you want. And friends, I think all of us are going to have to come through those passages or we've come through passages where we have to say, God, I've been wrong. I've been sinful. Please forgive me. Now align myself to your will. Because if we try and justify ourselves, we try and justify our behavior, justify our thinking, and force it like a, a square into a round hole, friends, it's, it's, it's just going to be difficult. And there's going to be ruin. And this is counsel for those of us who are part of God's family who want to grow to say, listen, be wise, not unwise. Be understanding, not foolish. And that idea of foolishness should, should be a, a warning to all of us but it also should be a counsel to say, hey, listen, you can be understanding because God has given you what you need to be understanding. Therefore, apply the tools, apply the things that you're learning in a way that would please the Lord. And that moves us then to this last um, contrast, and it's not necessarily always considered as part of this bigger picture, but it says here to be filled, um, to be spirit-filled and not drunk. Okay, to be spirit-filled and not drunk. Notice what it says, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, which of course is a word you always use in your sentences, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay? So now we have a comparison between drunkenness and being spirit-filled. Now, drunkenness is a, is a poignant picture here because it, it, it demonstrates for us, might want to say, the epitome of, of what it means to walk in darkness or to walk in this evil world, okay? A person who is drunk is a person who here is, is debauched, and the word debauched has the idea of a life of self-indulgence that seeks to satisfy its own flesh. All it's concerned about is me and what I get and what benefits me and satisfy my own sinful desires, in fact, turn to Proverbs chapter 23, Proverbs 23, and we'll begin at verse 29, Proverbs 23 and verse 29. This is all in the context of drunkenness. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. 
You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? Oh, I must have another drink. <laughs> all right, this is, you know, all these things are happening. It's like, oh, I got to have another drink. I got to have another drink. This person is drunk. Now, Paul is saying that drinking wine is sinful, but that getting drunk is, and that drunkenness leads quickly to living by one's flesh in such a way that all you can think about is yourself and satisfying your flesh. That is, if you can think long enough to do that. So what does it mean to be spirit-filled? It's like, that's quite a, quite a contrast, isn't it? All right? Now, I want to clarify some things without getting into too much detail, okay? Does it mean that the evidence of being filled with the Spirit is that we are acting and behaving like we are drunk? What's the answer? No. Okay? This is not what happened on the day of Pentecost when people saw the people speaking in tongues, the apostles speaking in tongues, and they said, oh, you know, they're, they're, they must be drunk. They weren't talking about their behavior and staggering around, all that kind of stuff. It was an issue of they heard them speaking languages that they shouldn't be speaking. So being filled with the Spirit does not mean that I act like I'm drunk. That betrays even the flow of the context of what's going in the book of Ephesians. This passage isn't saying that we should be drunk at all, <laughs> okay? Does this mean that we need to be drinking up all the Holy Spirit we can get? And the answer to that question is no. See, it was a little quieter there because you weren't sure exactly how to answer it, right? The answer is no. So you, you already have all the Holy Spirit that you need, that you're going to get. The issue right now is what are you doing with the Holy Spirit that you have, if you want to put it that way. This passage says nothing about drinking up the Holy Spirit. There is a contrast that is going on here. So what does it mean to be Spirit-filled? And in order for us to understand what it means to be Spirit-filled, again, we need to look at the theme of filled or fullness in the book of Ephesians. So I invite you to go now to chapter 1 and verse 23. Chapter 1 and verse 23. We'll, put it, we'll pick it up at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church then is the body of Christ. It is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. So we are the church and we are where Christ is expressed in his fullness. Okay? Look at chapter 3 and verse 19 now. Chapter 3 and verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So there's this being filled with the fullness of God. All of God, God being God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, were to be filled with all the fullness of God. Chapter 4, verse 10, and, and then also verse 11. 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And so Christ here is the agent who fills all things, and he does this through his people. Okay? Chapter 4, verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this fullness of Christ is the goal for every believer. It is maturity. Now see, these these are different ways that the idea of, of, of fullness is being used in this letter. And I know it may not be crystal clear, but understand here that he's already talked about the church being the fullness of Christ. It's Christ being the agent of that fullness being realized and this goal of them being mature, being this fullness that is being described. So to be filled with the Spirit is not to be filled with the the content or the commodity of the Holy Spirit, as some might think. Rather, it is that the Holy Spirit who is the means to bring us to fullness in Christ and to God. So the, the role of the Holy Spirit being talked about here is the means by which He is the one that is that is working the process of us actually experiencing the fullness that we already have in its complete sense. Let me put it this way. How many of you are saved? Raise your hand, not. If you're saved, you're a child of God, okay? If you are saved, you are being saved. And you will yet be saved. Your salvation, although realized now, has yet still to be completed. And in the same sense, if you are part of the body of Christ, Christ has now filled up his body, his church, with himself, but now those that are part of his church are realizing this fullness being fleshed out and and nurtured as they grow toward their maturity. And it is the Holy Spirit that is the agent, the means, by which that fullness comes. Okay? Now, what does all that mean? In other words, this is a call to let the Holy Spirit change us more and more into the image of God and Christ. Now, friends, that is so different than what is being taught in so many different places um, in our our church around uh, the United States and whatnot. The Holy Spirit is not a commodity that I need more of. You know, a number of years ago, they had all these blessings that were going on. They had one in Toronto. They had one in, in Florida. And other places, they probably had them too, at least you know, in quotes, right? They had these blessings. And people were rushing to these places because they wanted more of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to go anywhere to get more of the Holy Spirit. If you're a child of God, you have all the Holy Spirit you need. And you have all the Holy Spirit you're going to get. The question now is, is, how are you learning about your relationship with God that is mediated now in the present context through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that opens the eyes of our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to see God's truth and the ability to apply it to our lives. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So to be filled with the Spirit then is to allow the Holy Spirit to move us toward the fullness that we already have in Christ Jesus. Okay? It is not that we need more of the Holy Spirit and somehow that's evidenced by some kind of an experience. That's not what Ephesians is talking about. But you see, if you just take this passage 
and you wrench it out of its context, you can make it say a lot of different things. And that's why it's really important to study God's Word in its context. Therefore, walking in the Spirit is the means by which we are pursuing Christ-likeness. Being led by the Spirit does not mean, you know, Holy Spirit, which way do you want me to go? Holy, being led by the Spirit means that, that, that we are being drawn to walk in the Holy Spirit so as to be more like Christ. The Holy Spirit leads us to God's truth to, to direct us to be more like Christ, to grow and to mature in Him. To be filled, uh, Spirit-filled then is to, uh, to be under the guidance and the control of the Holy Spirit who is leading us to be more like Christ. Okay? Now the evidence of being filled with the Spirit is threefold. And we find that here right away in this passage. It's seen in our singing, it's seen in our thanksgiving, and it's seen in how we submit one toward another. Let's just kind of focus in on the last three areas here as we continue on, okay? First of all, uh, spirit-filled people love to sing from the heart, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord, with your heart. Notice it doesn't say singing and making melody to the Lord with your mouth, because there's a lot of people that can't sing and make melody to anyone with their mouth, all right? You guys are asleep, apparently, all right? This is a picture of what is going on in the heart. This is all starting at the end of verse 19, right? It's your heart, What has happened in your heart now overflows like a fountain and flows out in songs that address, address the congregation and address God who is sovereign over all things. So it's first of all horizontal, okay? It is first of all horizontal. Our songs address one another. When we sing, we are singing to edify and to encourage one another with the words that we're singing. I want you to think about the songs that we sang this morning. Um, We expressed our desire to be affected by God when we sang, open the eyes of my heart, open the eyes of my heart, I want to see you. So we sang a song expressing our desire to God, but we also sang a a song expressing to those around us, if we're singing it, that we actually desire these things. And when we stand together, singing together the same words of the same song, We are together encouraging and exhorting one another that what we're singing we believe and we want to do. We express the importance of following the Lord. We sang that with praise Him, praise Him, all you little children. God is love. God is love. We wanted the children to hear that. We wanted the children to participate in that. But we also wanted the children to be encouraged that we're singing a song that is helping them be drawn to focus on who God is. So there's this horizontal aspect. We express to others what we believe about God. You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. These are songs about God. We sing songs that talk about who God is. We also sing songs of what we call aspiration. You know, you know I, I want to love you more. I want to do these things. And they are, they are songs of, of desire. They're, they're songs not saying that we are doing those things, but we want to do those things. And we're asking God to to help us to do those things that we want to do. But in doing that, we are encouraging one another. We're helping one another. So this passage tells us how we sing, addressing 
with your heart, but also what we sing, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And a lot of people have done a lot of work to try and distinguish what those things are. That's not our point today. Um, but there are a variety of different kind of songs that we sing, right? There are hymns. You think of hymns as being those old hymns that have lots of theology that you breeze by real fast, right? And then there are what we call choruses, typically, and it's usually something, uh, maybe one point of theology or one theme that we kind of repeat a number of times, okay? Both have their place. One takes you to the depths of deep theology and wonderful richness. The other one helps you linger on an aspect of what God has revealed about himself, and both of them have their place. And there's an aspect that some of these other songs that are being talked about here are, are, are songs that are, are somewhat um, impromptu. You just kind of come out, and people who have musical ability or singing ability can stand up and they can sing without having prepared anything, just make their song as they're going, so to speak. Now, we'd, I don't know specifically. Some people have, have identified some of those things. The point being here, that it's the heart that bursts forth in song. That is evidence, friends, of someone being spirit-filled. Okay? Um, it's also vertical. Um, we're singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts. We express our delight and our trust in God. We express our confidence in what God promises. And so, friends, singing has been a mark of the church since it began. In the Reformation, it was Martin Luther that brought hymn singing to the church. You know, the song that he's probably most famous for, right? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. I mean, a powerful, rich, deep, purposeful, timely song for that moment, rallying the people together who have, who have just fallen in, the, in this wonderful awe of who God is, this, this freshness that the Reformation brought to um, the people during that time. And during the Wesleyan revival, Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns. And then there are the hymns of John Newton. And you may know Newton from his only hymns. And we sing Amazing Grace and others that, that he wrote. And he was writing these Olney hymns with a, a guy who was struggling with depression by the name of William Cooper. You may know him. He's the one that wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Or one we don't sing too much. Um, it's more sung in England, but um, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. I mean, these rich, wonderful hymns are born out of these times of revival, these times of great blessing where the church was strengthened. And then, of course, you know, the likes of, of D.L. Moody and, and Iris Sankey and that era. It was songs and songs and songs. And, and when the church is revived, when people have, have come to a place where they're just enjoying who God is, they love to sing. Spirit-filled people sing. They love to sing as an outflow, as an overflow of what is going on in their heart. Secondly, Spirit-filled people love to give praise. They, they love to give thanksgiving, is what it says here. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, unlike the, the debauchery of the ungodly that seeks only its, to satisfy its own selfish desires, a spirit-filled person is full of thanksgiving. It's not focused on self. It's it's celebrating what Christ has done for them. 
And so what we have here is, is a constant thanksgiving. It's always, right? Just this constant mode of thanksgiving. It's an attitude of thanksgiving that, that is continuous. Um, it's total thanksgiving for everything. Now, that doesn't mean when evil is committed against you that you are thankful for that evil. But even when that evil is committed against you, you still have things to be thankful for that are not that evil. If that makes any sense. Because what you have to be thankful for is that this life is, is but a vapor and you have somewhere better to go. You have a Savior who is Jesus Christ. You have a body of Christ. You have the Word of God. So there's always things to be thankful, even though things are being done to you that are evil. So the idea here of everything is not saying that everything is good. It's just saying in every circumstance, I can find something to be thankful for, even and especially if it's not that evil that was done against me. And friends, you, know, you hear people that have been you know, put in prison for their faith, and these are the things that they're coming up with. All this evil was done against me, but I knew I had Christ. I knew I had this song, and I knew I had this poetry. I knew I had this passage of Scripture. And they rejoiced in those things, in what little they had. It is also directional thanksgiving. It is to God. It's a thanksgiving that is ultimately to him. It is good for us to encourage the body by saying thank you to one another if someone has done a good job or they've, they've helped. But ultimately, that thanksgiving should be directed to God because he is the one that created that person that has now served you. And so ultimately, it goes to God. God, there's only one way I, I was able to do that. It's because you gave me the ability or the resources to do that. It is also a thanksgiving that is channeled. It is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is for his glory. It is conformed to his will, you might say. All right? So this, this thanksgiving is channeled through Christ, focused at God the Father. It's, it's for everything, and it's always. And so ultimately, this is a recognition of what we have in Christ. It's not dependent on our circumstances. In other words, it is a recognition of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ that were described in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. It is a recognition of what we are, that we are his workmanship. We are also this new man, the church, created for good works, created to be this vehicle that God is going to use to, to show the, the wisdom of his mystery, his gospel, to those that are around. And so the, the spirit-filled person is thankful despite his circumstances, because they are in Christ and serving Christ and being used for Christ in his ongoing unfolding of his plan. And the last one here is this whole idea of submission. Right? They're submitting. They're singing, they're thanksgiving, and there is submitting that is taking place. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now what's really interesting here that the very next section that we're going to look at is the whole arena of marriage where there is a submission required on the part of the wife to the husband but prior to that we have this general submission to one another idea that is taking place that is going to fashion and shape what is yet to come children need to be submissive to parents but there is a mutual submission even in the relationship in the home that means you can't be abusive in your you know, submitting or uh, asking for submission, there is a mutualness in that, okay? 
Now, let's think about this. The greatest example of what it means to submit is Christ himself. I want you to think just about, you know, this passage of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 and following. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was willing to let it go. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. The greatest example, then, of submission is the one who had the right place in heaven, willing to humble himself for the benefit of mankind. When Jesus was with the disciples um, in the upper room, um, we find him washing their feet. And here's what it says in John chapter 13, verses 14 and following. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And what Jesus is doing there is not saying you need to start a foot-washing ceremony in your church. He's saying to his disciples, listen, I am willing to humble myself by washing your feet, but this is a picture of what is yet to come when I'm going to humble myself by going to a cross and giving you something fuller and complete that will wash your whole body and your soul. And that is the sacrifice on the cross. He was willing to do that and to show us by his example that he's willing to submit. And so the point then here is this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, just before that other passage I read, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Which is very much like what Paul is saying in verse 21 of our text, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a mutual submission that is going on let me let me paint a picture of what i'm talking about okay um i'm going to embarrass a couple of people just because i know them um and they happen to be my family members um um so they're like oh no oh no all right um, i pick on my son adam um he's like, oh phew adam, right? adam so adam believe it or not he is he is typically here in the morning usually gets here between 7 45 and 8 and there are some times when um, Alex can't be here or some of the adults can't be here. And I remember coming here, here one day, and um, there were people ready to help set up. And I think some of the setup has already taken place. But there are guys that are standing there waiting. And we're talking about, you know, grown-up adult men who come to serve here, right? And they're waiting for Adam because Adam knows how to set things up and what what tablecloths go with what and what tables go where and all that kind of stuff. And so these guys were getting instruction from my son Adam. Oh, but they're older. He needs to submit to them. No, this is mutual submission. He had a role to do. He knew what to do. He was able to guide and help them. And the guys didn't mock him. They said, okay, that's great. And they, they just did the things they needed to do because he was aware of what needed to be done. You see, there's a mutual submission that is necessary within the body of Christ. There are some specific things that we have been, we have been told by God where th there are qualifications for certain roles, or you might want to say that there is a responsibility placed on the husband, which we'll get to next week, to, to, to lead and to guide the family. And the wife's responsibility then is to submit to her husband as she, in the same way that she submits to the Lord. 
Now, that does not mean, you know, be a wife who's a doormat who does everything her husband says. But it means to recognize the responsibility placed on his shoulders. There is a mutual submission that we, we function with as the church, as a family, and even as friends. And so there's this attitude of mutual submission, as opposed to demanding what I always want, which is what the world then ultimately would do, because... When your sinful flesh is in charge, you ultimately want what, want what you want, even if it's under the guise of being submissive. Okay? Now, there have been times in my ministry where I've met people who say, yeah, I'm a believer and I'm spirit-filled, but they are brash, they're self-promoting, they don't think twice about brushing someone else aside to simply get their way. And friends, that's a shame. That's not what Christians should be like at all. We should be submissive to one another. So to be spirit-filled is a beautiful thing. And it's marked, as we've seen here, by a heart that overflows in song, both to God and to those around them. It is a gratitude to God at all times for all things. It is humility that is eager and willing to submit to others out of reverence for Christ. But there are some final clarification uh, issues that I want to point out to you just about what it means to be spirit-filled that are worth noting here that we haven't drawn attention to yet. Number one, the call to be spirit-filled is a command. The call to be spirit-filled is a command. It's not an option. It is not for those who are, in your mind, the elite of the church. This is for everyone who is part of the church. We cannot ignore it. It is also a plural command, which means it's not just for one person, it's for everyone. So it's a command, it's a plural command. Third, to be filled with the Spirit is a passive command. So what do you mean by that? It means you don't have to be Spirit-filled. You're not the one that creates the Spirit-filling. It's passive, meaning you allow the Holy Spirit to fill you. You are the one who is allowing the Holy Spirit to move you in the direction of maturity. And you do that by being obedient to God's Word, by spending time in His Word, by being sensitive to what God says, to submit yourself to the Word of God. And, and when you do the things that God is asking you to do, by virtue of that, you are allowing them, the Holy Spirit, to bring you to fullness in Christ. Okay? It is also a call to be filled with the Spirit in the, in the present tense. Therefore, it is, it is a continual command. In the Greek, in the Greek language, uh, grammar, if it's in the present tense, that means continually. So this is something that is ongoing. It's not a one-time thing. Oh, I was Spirit-filled last year. It's done. No, it's an ongoing reality. We're constantly, day by day, being filled with the Spirit, moving in this this ongoing growth toward Christ-likeness. Now, walking carefully then means knowing what to avoid, knowing what to pursue, knowing what to think, knowing to, uh, whom to please. It is a serious matter. The reason it's here in this text is not to fill up space, but to guide us and the Ephesian church, but ultimately us, so that we would walk in a way that would please the Lord, and we would walk very, very carefully. And so, friends, it is a very serious matter. Don't play around with God's counsel and instructions. Don't seek to water down what God says because you don't like it. 
Don't think that you know better. Don't be foolish, unwise, and behave like the ungodly. Instead, be wise, understanding, spirit-filled, and walk carefully. Why? Because the days are evil. Lord, help us today. This is a, a, a hard, penetrating challenge to all of us. that we're living in the context of darkness and evil, and we need to be alert, alert to walk carefully. And that means, Lord, that we, we need to be purposeful, to be wise, to, to see our lives in the context of your overall plan and to make the most of the opportunity that we have. And Lord, that's, that's why we gather together. That's why we spend time together. That's why we open up the Word together. That's why we go to Bolivia together. That's why we do these things, Lord. And I just ask that you would help us to see, uh, Lord, how we can grow in, in making the most of our opportunity to serve you because the days are evil. Lord, help us to be understanding, not foolish, not to, not to even drift off into to attitudes and behaviors, Lord, that would be marked by what we used to be like, but Lord, attitudes and behaviors and thinking, Lord, that would reflect an understanding of your Holy Spirit revealing your truth to us and, and responding in obedience and joy and, and, and uh, following through, Lord, with the things that you are counseling us with. And then, Lord, we, we just ask that you give us a grasp of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Lord, help us to to, to avoid some of the foolish thinking that is out there that just turns this passage on its head and, and creates this kind of um, uh, experiential approach to the Holy Spirit's activity in our lives. Lord, certainly walking with you is an experience. Certainly there are times of emotion and, and sadness and heartache and joy and, and just reveling in your word. But Lord, help us to be mindful that this, this being led and filled with the Holy Spirit, Lord, is your Holy Spirit being the agent of moving us down this path toward being like your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, may it be evident in our church, may it be evident in our lives that we love to sing or that we love to give praise and thanks for all that you do. And Lord, that we love one another in such a way that we're not concerned about who's on top. We're willing to submit to one another and interact with one another in a way, Lord, that would please you and honor you, Lord, that 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 kind of lifestyle would be a shock to the world around us. Lord, help us to take these words to heart so that we can be what you've called us to be. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.